Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. Good morning. So, I I have a PowerPoint. And I'm hoping that I don't have a repeat of District Assembly. Were you guys at District Assembly? How many people were at District Assembly? So I I was at District Assembly and I sent my PowerPoint a couple of weeks or a couple of hours before. I won't tell you which. (laughs) And uh, they said, we'll have it ready for you. And uh, when I got to up to the platform to to speak, I said, uh, okay, my PowerPoint's going to appear. And the person up in the booth went, Fortunately, here I can't see the people in the booth, so they might be going like this. And, uh, so I'm Chad Dickerson. I'm a missionary to the South America region uh, of the Church of the Nazarene, and I am your Lynx missionary. I don't know if you guys have talked about that. Uh, so that's a special program where we build a connection with different districts so that uh, we can talk and, and get birthday wishes, and, and I can pray for specific um, prayer requests on your district, and, and you folks can pay pray for prayer requests that I have, and it's been a privilege to be your Lynx missionary for the past two years. Uh, I got more birthday uh, messages from your district than I got from my home district, uh, so I was, I've been so surprised uh, by the, the love that, that your district has, has shown to me. It's, kinda, it's hard for me to start because I start off by introducing you to my family. Uh, with my PowerPoint, and it doesn't really make any sense to introduce you to people that you can't see. Uh, So, okay, it looks like, okay, we can go right to the first um, slide. Okay, so this picture here, this is my mom and my brother. Um, I call him my younger, bigger brother. My brother's taller than me and stronger than me, and I'm just glad that he doesn't pay me back for our childhood, uh, (laughs) because I deserve it. Uh, This picture, actually, go back, Uh, the picture of my mom and brother uh, actually was taken in Tennessee. Uh, My mom lived in Sphereville for about two years. She went there on vacation and liked it and decided to pack everything up and go there. So we rented a U-Haul and did all that. And then two years later, she decided she didn't like it that much. So (laughs) she went back. Uh, Yeah, so that was my first time in Tennessee. Uh, But this time I'm getting to see more of the real Tennessee, not just the, the tourist sites. You can go to the next slide. So this picture here is of me and my dad, taken a couple of years ago. Uh, it, my dad wasn't one to, to take a lot of pictures, um, but in this picture, I think if, if you look at it and you look at me, I think we really resemble each other. So it's one of my favorite pictures uh, with him. Um, and then on the next slide, you'll, you'll meet my grandparents, uh, my mom's parents. I know it's not normal for someone to include their grandparents in a, a slideshow about their family, but my grandparents actually um, pro- I lived with them for about 10 years. Uh, My mom, when I was a teenager, had um, surgery, and the doctor prescribed prescription painkillers. And uh, long story short, he prescribed some, like the dose for a 250-pound man, uh, and she was a less than 100-pound woman. And so she got addicted to those painkillers. It's a story we've heard over and over again, and hopefully we're starting to hear less of it, but 
Uh, my grandparents provided kind of a stable place for me during that time and, and a place that was about five minutes from the school that I was going to, so it made it a lot easier. Uh, and then on the next slide is the soon to be newest addition to my family, and that's my fiance, Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay and I met each other in October of 2019. It started dating in December of 2019, and then uh, the Quito airport shut down for about three or four months. <laughs> and so uh, we had, I had a meeting scheduled in Kansas City in April, and I wasn't able to go to that. And then we had other plans for when uh, we would be able to see each other. But turn, long story short, we got to August, of uh, 2020, and that's the first time we got to see each other after starting to date. So we made it eight months without seeing each other. And uh, so now the two and three month uh, time periods that we have to wait seem like nothing at all. Um, Lindsay is studying at Mid-America Nazarene University, a mental health counseling master's. Uh, and the plan that we have is for her to come to Quito, uh, where I live, uh, Quito, Ecuador, uh, after we get married. Uh, which will be in May of 2022, uh, and that she'll be able to utilize that degree, that education that she has to make a difference uh, in the church, uh, whether it be with missionary care, um, pastoral trainings, or um, just equipping the local church to kind of bridge that gap. Because sometimes um, in our, our tradition, we, we, we are very thankful to God that he can uh, help us with, with mental health uh, things, struggles that we have, but we are also thankful that he's given us the understanding and he's equipped professionals to be able to help us through that process. And so we're hopeful that she'll be able to incorporate that in, in our ministry. Go to the next slide. So I want to tell you guys a little bit about how I came to be a missionary in the Church of the Nazarene, because uh, it's not exactly the, the normal path. I don't know if anybody has a normal path, but um, I went to the University of Delaware for four years and studied Spanish language and literature and criminal justice, which is an interesting combination, right? So one day I would be learning about uh, the fourth article of the Constitution, and then the next day I would be learning about 15th century Spanish literature. <laughs> so it was a weird combination. But the reason I was studying those two things is because I wanted to be a Spanish interpreter uh, in the court. Uh, so I, I won't ask you guys... Uh, how many people have been to court, um, but when you go to court, whether it be for traffic or something else, uh, there will be people sometimes who don't speak English, or at least don't speak uh, a level of English where you can understand what's being said by the judge and the lawyers and all of that, um, because there's times where I think people who've spoken English their whole life don't understand what, what judges and lawyers are, are saying. Um, so I wanted to kind of bridge that gap and help with that, um, that process. And so but as I got to the end of my, my time at University of Delaware, I thought, I don't want to speak Spanish every day. That seems too hard, uh, which, looking back, is really silly because there are days that I don't speak any English. <laughs> um, and so I started to ask my professors, what should I do? What kind of jobs are available for someone with my degree? And a couple of my professors said, well, why don't you try going to law school? Uh, and I wasn't a huge fan of that idea because law school would be another three years of school. Uh, I didn't even want to do the first four, um, but spoiler alert, I'm still in school, uh, and this is 10 years later. Uh, and uh, so I, I wasn't really into that idea, but I started praying to God, and I said, God, if this is what you want, uh, then make it clear because law school is not just three more years of school, but it's also a huge financial um, commitment. 
And I, I had made it through undergrad without any debt, and so I wanted to be able to do that, uh, or at least not take on a huge amount of debt for, for law school. And so um, I started praying, and I took the entrance exam uh, after studying for about two or three hours the night before, uh, and I only applied to one school uh, because that was the school that I could commute to and didn't have to, to go live on campus because I didn't want to live too far from home. Uh, and uh, two weeks later, uh, I got an email that said, congratulations on your scholarship. And uh, this was weird because I hadn't got, gotten an email from the school saying, we want you to come to our school. Uh, but that email said, uh, we're going to pay for uh, almost three quarters of, of your tuition. And so I took that as God's kind of sign, not so subtle sign, that he was providing the, the way to do this before I even knew that I really had to do it, right? And so I went to uh, law school, and uh, I have a slide uh, here with uh, me and a few of my friends as we graduated. Um, but if we jump back six months before graduation, I was in my last semester, and I went to the district assembly, and someone stood up and said, we're going to go to Peru on a work and witness trip. Uh, and I hadn't been on a work and witness trip in a while. Uh, how many people have been on work and witness trip here? A few? Good. Uh, and so um, I hadn't gone because I'd been in school and, and all of that. And so uh, I decided to go to Peru uh, because I also wanted to go to a country where they spoke Spanish because I hadn't had that opportunity uh, yet. And so I went to Peru uh, and we worked on four different churches over a week and a half's time. Uh, we were mixing concrete on the ground and laying block and doing a whole bunch of things that I'm not qualified to do because I don't know how to do them. Uh, but uh, no, go back to the, the next slide, uh, or the past slide. And so uh, during that time, we were also doing like a VBS uh, and different activities. But, but the big thing that happened for me on that trip was I decided I was going to spend that time kind of uh, reading my Bible more and praying more and reconnecting with God because I hadn't stopped being a Christian and I hadn't stopped going to church, uh, but those kind of personal spiritual practices hadn't uh, been as strong in my life. And so I decided to kind of set that time apart. And as I did it, God started to, to speak to me and he started to make me feel really uh, a discomfort about the plan that I had for my life. Um, and one day we were on the job site and a retired missionary uh, was on the team with us, and he had, we had been talking as we were shoveling what seemed like forever of concrete or of stone into the cement mixer, and then he put his shovel down and he said, uh, Chad, you should come back to Peru for six months as a volunteer. And the way his words hit me, uh, it was so impactful. I knew that it wasn't this retired missionary speaking to me. It, it was God who was using him uh, as a voice to kind of tell me, this is what I want your plan to be. And so after a few days, um, I spent time in prayer and, and kind of felt the affirmation uh, that that was what God wanted. And so I went home, and uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with um, being a lawyer or, or the whole process to become a lawyer, but you go to school for three years. And so I finished my last semester of school, and then you have to take an exam called the bar exam. And it's not how to mix drinks or anything like that. It's just bar is the name of what they call people who are lawyers in a certain place, usually by state. And so uh, what you do is you go to school for three years and then you have to study intensively 12 hours a day for three months because they're going to teach you the stuff that you actually have to know for the exam. <laughs> and so I spent... 
three months studying from about eight in the morning until 10 at night uh, and um, eating a whole lot of junk, but going to the gym every day when I could too. Um, and then I took the exam for three days. It's a three-day exam. It takes about 16 to 17 hours. Um, and then two days later, I got on a plane and went to Peru to serve uh, as a volunteer missionary for six months. And so, uh, next slide. While I was there, I did a couple of different things. Uh, one thing was, uh, this photo looks a lot like um, a work and witness team, but this is the pre-work and witness team work. Um, so those of you who have gone on a work and witness trip, uh, you probably laid block or painted or um, mixed concrete, but a lot of times work and witness teams arrive and there's a nice foundation built for them to put the bricks on. Uh, and so someone has to do that work. And so we would go ahead of time and we would prep for the team. Um, I also, uh, you can go to the next slide. I also, because I spoke Spanish and English, um, I was automatically qualified to be the translator of child sponsorship letters. So Peru has uh, over 500 children who are in the child sponsorship program. And um, if you've ever sponsored a child through Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, you know that the child has to send a letter uh, every three months to their sponsor. And those letters would get to Lima in Spanish, and then they had to magically get into English before they went off to headquarters. And so over the course of six months, I translated something like 1,600 letters or 1,500 letters. Um, and it felt really, really monotonous at the time. Um, but two years later, as I was preparing to, three years later, as I was preparing to come to, to your district and share, I really realized that um, translating those letters gave me a glimpse into the culture that I wouldn't have had uh, just talking to, to people on the street or in churches uh, because children notice things that adults don't notice because they've done it for so many years. And, but children, if, they, if they're talking to someone new or if, especially if it's someone who doesn't look like them or, or they don't know or who's from far away, they'll say, you know, we do this thing. Uh, and we do that, and this is why we do it. Sometimes the why was not exactly <laughs> why people would do it, but it was really a good experience to be able to understand a little bit better uh, the Peruvian culture. And then the last thing that I did, um, you can go to the next slide, yeah, was just kind of um, help with whatever needed to be done. So this here is a district assembly on the South Central District. You can see Dr. Busick there, one of our general superintendents, and he's ordaining uh, someone. And... Uh, this was a really big moment for, for the, the church in this district because those five men that are standing around Dr. Busick and have laid their hands on the person being ordained, uh, they were the only elders on, on that district. And so this was a big moment to have more um, elders ordained on this district. And I was doing the sound system or translating some paperwork or something, uh, and I just basically did whatever needed to be done. But what, what was important during those six months was that serving God and serving the church in this way, God uh, was affirming that I had a call to, to ministry. And it wasn't necessarily a call to be a missionary for 40 years or, or be a local church pastor uh, or, or anything in particular, right? It was just a call to serve God's church in whatever way that God um, directs. And so what I did to kind of facilitate that call was I, I reached out to some leaders on, on our region uh, in Brazil, uh, because I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd and I like learning languages, and Brazil speaks Portuguese, uh, so I wanted to learn Portuguese, and so I wanted to serve as a volunteer in Brazil. And we were emailing back and forth, and uh, I found out later they had an assignment for me and they were ready for me to come, but then all of a sudden, 
um, they stopped responding to my emails. And I talked to someone later and they said, I don't really, I don't know what happened, um, but God knew what happened uh, and God had a plan. And so I went home uh, and you'll see the obligatory Instagram picture as I left uh, Peru. Um, but it was really a difficult time for me because I knew and had felt God affirming this call to ministry. But the way that I knew to live out that call, um, the doors were being shut. There was no opportunities that were coming up for me to keep serving as a volunteer missionary. Um, but I went home and I went to talk to, um, as part of the bar exam process, uh, you have to have an attorney who's practiced for 10 years, who signs off on all your documents, your 75-page application, and uh, attests to the fact that you're a decent person and you know good enough to be a lawyer. Uh, and uh, I went to talk to him about that, and he said, uh, you know, we have a job opening. Uh, and he was the county prosecutor for the county where I did my internship. And I, I said to him, oh, that's cool. Uh, but I was totally uninterested. <laughs> I didn't want to work as a lawyer. I didn't want to be in the States even. I wanted to be out there serving God in the way that I knew uh, was best. Uh, and so two days later or three or four days later, I'm not sure how long it was, I went to go have lunch with some old coworkers at that same office and I ran into that uh, county prosecutor and he said, you know, tomorrow's the last day you can apply. And so he was kind of saying, apply, so that you know you can get this job. And so I uh, filled out an application and um, went and went home. And then two days later, they called me in for an interview and went through the process. And I ended up uh, being a deputy attorney general for the state of Delaware for a year. Uh, actually, it was 13 days shy of a year. If I'd realized it at the time, I probably would have worked for those other two weeks so that I could say it was a year. But now I have to go through this long explanation that people don't really care about. Uh, <laughs> And so during that, that year, uh, I, I was a prosecutor. So deputy attorney general are the prosecutors in Delaware. So a prosecutor, um, if you're not familiar with court, there's defense attorneys, where if you go to court and you have a charge against you, the defense attorney is going to help you and going to defend your case. But then there's going to be the person who argues for the state and tries to make you pay a fine or, or do community service or go to jail or whatever. That person was me. So I was the bad guy for a lot of people. And there's probably some people who are still not too happy with me. But um, during that time, it was a really good experience because I got to meet uh, a lot of people and interact with a lot of people who I wouldn't normally have had the opportunity to, to interact with. People who um, would be in court every week for the same thing. People who were struggling uh, in deep, deep addiction. Uh, and I like to think that from, from my position, I was able to make a difference, uh, you know, um, being fair and, and trying to do that. But I got to, to see a little bit more of, of the world, I think, through that job. Um, but something else was happening while I was uh, working as, as a deputy attorney general, uh, and that was that my dad got sick. And you can go to the next slide. My dad had COPD for about 10 years before this picture was taken. Uh, he was diagnosed uh, in somewhere around 2009, 2008, while I was in high school. And uh, my dad took that diagnosis as uh, this is a chronic illness, so there's nothing they can do about it. I shouldn't bother with treatment, so I'm just going to stay at home and, and avoid people who are sick. And so my dad ended up being homebound for two to three years. Uh, and um, when I got home, he had what's called an exacerbation of his COPD, 
which means basically he couldn't breathe, kind of lost consciousness, and he ended up in the ICU for a week. And so we spent that week together. Uh, I would leave for an hour a day to go get Chick-fil-A, uh, my favorite food, and uh, shower, and then I would go back uh, and spend more time talking to the doctors and nurses and, and all of that. And then after that week, my dad went home on hospice care, and he spent a month uh, at home. Uh, and it was during that time that I realized why God didn't let me go to Brazil, why God closed those doors. Uh, and it was because uh, there was an important conversation that I needed to have with my dad. My dad grew up uh, a Christian. Uh, he grew up uh, and was saved as a child, but he grew up in a faith tradition that um, believes that once you're saved, you're always saved and there's nothing you can do at all. Uh, you can live your life however you want and your, your ticket's punched, right? And not here to argue the theological differences that we have uh, with that, that theology. That's uh, your pastor's job. Uh, and, uh, but I, I do know that we disagree with that. And, uh, I needed to have a conversation with my dad to make sure that, uh, he was on the right track and had reconciled with God. Um, but an amazing thing happened. Uh, my dad was kind of in and out of coherency. Some days were really good. Some days were just sleeping the whole day, not eating, not doing anything. But the day that the lawyer was coming to take care of his will and, uh, all of that, uh, stuff, um, he was totally with it, totally coherent. I'd been praying for several days, Lord, please let him be um, present uh, to be able to do this stuff. And uh, I walked into the room and I said to my brother and my dad's friend and my mom who was there, I think I said, give me the room, I need the room. And so they thought that I was working on uh, talking to my dad about his will and, and figuring out some last minute things. Um, but what I was doing was I was trying to talk to him about Jesus and uh, I had a whole plan, and I decided what I was going to say, and I knew how I was going to argue with him when he said this, and how I was going to tell him he was wrong when he said this. And uh, I started off, and I said, Dad, have you been talking to God? And my dad said, yes. And I was like, oh, I have to need, I need a new plan, because I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, and it's really a testament to, it's the greatest testament to God's provenient grace that I've ever seen lived out, that grace that goes before, because I was ready to have that conversation with my dad, and I knew that he needed me to be there to talk to him about God, um, but God had already met him, and God had already gone into that room where he was suffering. I don't know when that happened, if that was during the time that he was home alone, or if it was when he was in the ICU on the ventilator, or if it was when he was uh, on hospice care, but God came to him at some point and reminded him of the love that he had for him and reminded him that he wanted to forgive him. And my dad was able to have that conversation alone. And so that gives me a great deal of hope for so many people that I've known where, you know, we've all had those thoughts. Um, So-and-so died. I wonder what, you know, I wish I'd had that conversation. And it gives me a great hope to know that God meets people where they are and, and has those conversations without needing our help at all. Um, and so my dad did pass away. Uh, and, and I'm so thankful to God that I was able to have that conversation with my dad because even though God didn't need me, I needed to know uh, my dad's final destination, right? Um, and so uh, I started uh, a Master's of Divinity at NTS, um, Nazarene Theological Seminary. I'm still doing that degree. It's like a three-year degree, and I'm 
going to be in the five or six year program because <laughs> uh, I'm doing one course at a time. Um, and uh, I don't remember what my next slide is, so let's just go to it. Okay, so uh, I was studying at NTS and still working as a prosecutor, and I was trying to just um, keep developing that career because I decided that uh, I wasn't going to be able to go back to the mission field, and, and uh, that was fine. Uh, but then one day, one of my friends from South America called me and said, uh, are you happy with what you're doing? And uh, that's a big question. Uh, are you, do you like your life is basically what he was saying, right? Are you satisfied with your job? Um, and I said to him, well, I, I know that I'm where God wants me to be right now, uh, but I'm not closed off to any other opportunities that God might have. And, um, and he said, okay, somebody's going to call you. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like that where someone asks you a question that's like, makes you ask a million questions, right? What's he talking about? Why is he asking me this? Uh, where does he want me to go, maybe? Um, and, and then to just say, okay, somebody will call you. So no answers <laughs> to those questions that were burning. But somebody did call me, uh, and it was um, someone from the South America region, and, and he said, uh, we'd like you to come back and serve as a missionary on our region. And uh, I said, okay, uh, can I pray about it? And obviously they said yes. Uh, but I think we had a different idea of what that was going to look like uh, because I prayed for six weeks about uh, that decision um, because picking up your life, stopping a, a, a part of your career that you've been working on for a year, uh, leaving my grandparents who were in their 80s already, um, all of those things, I needed a big definite yes from God uh, that this was what he wanted. And so I was waiting for, for a response like I had in Peru from that uh, retired missionary who said very clearly, you should do this. And I felt that it was God talking to me. But that kind of answer didn't come in those six weeks that I was praying. And uh, we had a girl in our youth group when I was helping with our youth group at church. And she used to say, God, why can't you write the answer on a brick and throw it down from heaven and hit me right here so that I know that it's you? Uh, but God doesn't always work that way. And so one day I was in my prayer time and I got to 1 Kings, uh, which is a story about Elijah. And Elijah's in the cave at Horeb hiding. And uh, an angel of the Lord comes and says, go out from here because the spirit of the Lord's going to pass by this place. And so Elijah goes out and it says, uh, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And so when I read that verse, I knew I could feel the way that God had been gently whispering to me all along. When I started studying at NTS, uh, when I started learning Portuguese by myself with a private teacher because I'm that person that just wants to learn more languages. Uh, when I started um, helping at my local church and getting ministerial experience uh, and kind of supervision from my, my local pastor. All of these things came together and combined with the call of the church uh, to make it clear to me that God was whispering, this is where I want you to go. Uh, and so I serve on the South America region as a missionary. Uh, on our region, we have 10 world areas. Um, the Church of the Nazarene is in 164 world areas, 
but on our region, those 10 world areas are all countries. Uh, in those 10 world areas, we have a total of 2,809 churches. Um, and so uh, NCM, you can go to the next slide. Uh, so I, what is it that I do on, on my region? Because sometimes um, it's cool to say that you're a missionary, but uh, it's, it's better to be more specific. So I'm, I'm the coordinator for our region of Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. And uh, that sounds like a big uh, title, regional coordinator. But really what I do is, is me and these uh, other four people on the screen uh, we work together uh, to help the local church to connect with its community and understand the needs in its community and respond to the needs in its community in a holistic and sustainable way that's going to bring transformation through the love of Christ to the community. And so we have Pedro Salinas is on the left side of the screen. He's the communications coordinator for NCM. He makes videos and PowerPoints and corrects my Spanish when I need him to. Uh, and then there's Nayara Silva, who's the regional program assistant. She helps everyone on this, this screen with whatever needs to be done in their different areas. Uh, she's also the one who corrects my Portuguese when uh, I need it. Um, because even though I've been speaking Spanish for eight years and Portuguese for three years, just about, uh, you never quite get it perfect, right? Uh, and so then we also have Lorena Noe, who's on that side, the left side of the bottom. She's our regional disabilities ministries consultant. And we'll talk a little bit more about, or I'll talk a little bit more about what she does on our region. And then we have Maria Arminia on the other side, and she is our auditor and financial stewardship um, consultant or, or coordinator. And she basically makes sure that everyone turns in their reports on time and that their receipts look good. And uh, she worked for many years in the government of Brazil, making sure that the government turned in their their receipts and stuff. And uh, she does a lot of things that I don't understand because in law school, they always told us, you'll have someone who'll do the math for you. Uh, and now I have her, fortunately. Um, so you can go to the next slide. Okay, so now I have an activity or a demonstration, but I need 11 people uh, to volunteer to come up and stand across the front. And I was told to tell the teenagers that they can come up uh, because they're good at doing activities. So I need 11 people. And my dad always, my dad was a, so it, from this side, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, so it's important that you stay in order once you get, once you get these, you have to stay in order once you get them. Or else my PowerPoint's not going to make any sense. Wow, you guys are good at telling when, when money's real or not. Okay, so what you're going to do is I need you to count the money that's there. <laughs> so what, what, what this is, while they're counting, I'm going to explain. So uh, a lot of times we, we get the idea that people in other countries or, or in other places have a different economic situation, that maybe there's more poverty um, or that, you know, there's poor people over there sometimes even. You'll hear that. But, but sometimes it's hard to wrap our head around exactly what that looks like. And so I wanted to do this activity to kind of um, show a little bit maybe more tangibly what that looks like. 
And so while they're telling us the amounts and they're going to pop up on the screen, uh, you guys, I need you guys to think about what these amounts could, could represent. And then um, you guys are going to have to give some guesses. Okay. Three hundred twelve. Three ten. Two fifteen. Two sixty six. Four hundred fifty six. Four hundred. Three hundred forty. Two hundred forty four. Four hundred eight. Five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Seventy three. Okay, I think everybody got their numbers right. Um, so, uh oh, go back one maybe. Okay, so what what do these numbers represent? Does anybody have a guess? You dropped your. You had one job. <laughs> Does anybody have an idea what, what these numbers might represent? It can be up here or back there. Currency. Currency, okay. That's a good guess. How much a meal is? That's a good guess, too. Transfer rate is, I've heard that guess a lot in different churches. Annual income is a good guess, and I heard daily income. So those are two really good guesses, and we're going to meet in the middle. Monthly income. Okay, so, so these, it, you can go to the next click. So each of these um, countries are the 10 countries on our region. We have Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Ecuador, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, and Venezuela. And then you'll see that I put the U.S. up there. And so does anybody see anything wrong with my calculations? So $73 obviously isn't monthly income for anybody uh, in the U.S. But what I did was I took the federal minimum wage and multiplied it by 10 for 10-hour 10 workday. I don't know how many hours you guys work in a day, but I just tried to find like an average. And so what you'll see is that in most cases, uh, five or six workdays at minimum wage in the U.S. is going to equal a month's worth of pay in another country, so in one of our 10 countries. So a week's worth of pay here is going to equal um, a, the monthly income in, in one of these countries. You also dropped your money. <laughs> okay, so thank you guys. You can hand, keep them in order if you can. Okay, let's clap for them because they were the brave volunteers. Okay, so I don't know about uh, you guys, uh, which I know isn't the right way to say that here. I'm supposed to say y'all. Yeah, I haven't quite gotten it into my vocabulary, but uh, when I first kind of was thinking through these numbers and looking at these numbers, uh, it, it, it makes sense, these amounts, um, but we also know that things cost different, different prices or things cost more or less in other countries, and so it's not really a fair representation to just say, oh, this is a month's income because maybe it's way cheaper to buy everything. Um, so what I did was I came here in, in Tennessee and bought a liter and a half of cooking oil. And I don't know uh, how many of you have bought one of these recently, but how much does one of these cost uh, here in Tennessee? $2, that's close, yeah, two fifty-seven. And so what I did was I also talked to uh, Ten of my friends, one in each country, uh, and you can go click, uh, and they told me how much it cost for a liter and a half of cooking oil on their, uh, in their country. And so uh, 
I was trying to do this to kind of give a, a better perspective because if you, if you see, even though a week's worth of work is going to equal a month's worth of work in the most, of, most of these countries, uh, the cooking oil price here is still the second cheapest of all of those that are up there. And only Brazil uh, beats the US in terms of uh, cheapest price, if my math is right. And, um, and that's because Brazil right now is going through some inflation things and their currency is um, devaluing or, or economic stuff that I don't understand. Uh, and so uh, this was my attempt to kind of give a perspective of, of some of the needs that are present on our region. So in NCM, you can go to the next slide, what we do is we partner with the local co Nazarene congregations around the world to clothe, shelter, feed, heal, educate, and live in solidarity with those who suffer under oppression, injustice, violence, poverty, hunger, and disease. So that's a lot of things for a lot of things. Putting it simply, what we do is we uh, work with what the local church is already doing. We, we meet the local church when they identify a need and we take the expertise that we have from around the world or at, uh, at the, the GMC in Kansas City and try to help them to serve their community in a way that's sustainable and going to bring lasting transformation uh, to kind of overcome some of those economic differences that you saw uh, in, the, in the last slide. And so I keep talking about the local church. Uh, and you guys might think that I'm obsessed with the local church. But the reason is because uh, I'm going to take your church as an example. If I, if I were, hypothetically, the regional coordinator for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries for USA Canada, and I came to your church and I said, okay, uh, real life, what we're going to do, what you guys need to do uh, is open a women's shelter uh, over three blocks that way. And uh, your pastor... Uh, your pastors or, or maybe your board is going to say, well, that doesn't make any sense because we don't have that need here. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, but you're going to say, oh, you know what we really should do is we should uh, open up uh, and teach some ESL classes down at the, the fire company because there's a, a huge population here who needs that to, to, to work in the community. And so the local church knows their community. You guys know your community, you know your neighbors, you know the needs that you have in your community, and nine times out of 10, your, your local church is gonna be the one that's gonna to get to the right solution to that, that's gonna be lasting, understanding your context, because it's not always gonna to work to plant a garden in the community. And it's not always gonna to work to, to do an aquaponics project. Um, and so we rely on the local church. The local church is the one who takes the initiative and serves their community, and we just come alongside them. Okay, you can go to the next slide. So we do that in nine different uh, areas of emphasis. Those are anti-human trafficking, economic development, emergency relief, food security, health care, uh, holistic child development, refugee and immigrant support, clean water, and women and girls support. So these are nine areas that the global church has identified as ways that the local church can serve their community to reflect the love of Christ uh, to the people in their community and make a difference. And so uh, on our region, we have a 10th area of emphasis. And I talked about Lorena earlier, who's our Disabilities Ministries consultant. Lorena has a child development center that she runs for uh, children and young adults with disabilities. And uh, my predecessor, the, the previous regional coordinator, identified on our region a need uh, that people with disabilities aren't included in worship services in the, in the way that they should be. Uh, and it's not 
any kind of uh, malice or, or evil decision intentionally excluding people, um, but it takes an intentional decision to change around your worship service or change around how your church functions in order to be inclusive of people uh, with disabilities. Just some uh, quick examples are uh, maybe um, providing uh, earbuds uh, to block out noise for people who, who have uh, auto sen audio sensitive um, or, or including a, a order of service that's with pictograms in the back of the, the church so that someone uh, who really needs to have that structure and understand what's coming uh, will feel more comfortable. And so uh, you'll notice that I'm kind of stumbling through this stuff. It's because I don't know. <laughs> I'm not an expert in this uh, stuff. Lorena is the expert. And so my job is to rely on her and to connect her with local churches who want to, to change the dynamic of their worship service or also open a center for attention to people with disabilities in their community. Um, yeah, you can go to the next slide. So I want to tell you about three big things that have happened in the last two years, and I have no idea what time it is, so just start throwing stuff at me if I'm going way past uh, lunchtime. Uh, so uh, on our region uh, and around the world, over the past year and a half, uh, COVID-19 pandemic has been a thing, and I'm not here to talk about masks or vaccines or whether restrictions should have been put in place or anything like that. Uh, what I'm here to talk about is the real economic impact that we've seen in our, our 10 countries on our region and in many countries around the world. Uh, and so that impact was real and the local church uh, stepped up to meet the needs of people in their community. This was uh, especially uh, difficult on our region because we have several countries where people work uh, day to day, right? They go out today and they make enough money for lunch, then they eat lunch and then they go make enough money for dinner and they go and repeat it the next day. So when everything shut down, people weren't able to go out and work uh, so uh, some people were, you know, in their homes, fine, ordering food through Uber Eats and those kind of things, but there were lots of people who couldn't do that. And so the church in all 10 countries, in 60, more than 60 of our districts, uh, decided to serve their community with, with food uh, and non-food item distribution. And we were able to serve 45,599 beneficiaries on our region. And that number is kind of a fake statistic, not because Chad sent in reports that had a thousand more people than it should have or anything like that. But when we do reporting, what we do is we know how many baskets of food were, were made and we hand them out. And then we calculate that it's four people per basket or three or two, depending on the project and the size. Um, but what we saw was that people would take that uh, four-person basket of food or bag of food, and they would take it home and share it with the other four people who are living in their home. So there you have eight people who are benefiting. And then uh, people would also go and split it up with their neighbors uh, who, who were in need. And so that number could be three or four times uh, what it is. Um, and so on the next slide, you'll see that there were two ways uh, that the church kind of lived out this response to the, to the pandemic. And it was uh, with hot food on the, on the left. Uh, so they would prepare meals and, and distribute them to people who uh, maybe uh, couldn't prepare meals in their own home or didn't have a home uh, to prepare them. And then the majority of our response was through uh, those baskets or bags of food that I talked about. And so the church would identify people in the community who were really struggling through this time and they would take a basket or bag of food uh, to them uh, and we heard so many stories of, of the church uh, 
uh, arriving just in time for, for people who were really, um, really struggling. Another big thing that has happened on our region over the past two years, you can go to the next slide, um, is I don't know how many of you have been paying attention um, to, to the situation in, in Venezuela, uh, but you noticed on our, on our list earlier of uh, incomes that it was $5 per month that a person makes uh, in Venezuela. Uh, and I asked a couple of friends in Venezuela about how much does a person need to, to eat in a healthy way for a month. And they said, well, it's about $285. Uh, so you have people who need $285 to live and they're making $5. And it's not making $5 because they're only going and working two hours a day or doing this or that. They're going out and working full work weeks, full work months and getting $5. Um, and it has to do with more economic stuff that I don't really understand. But um, what we, what the local church in Venezuela uh, did was in December of 2019, they decided that they wanted to serve their community in a big way, and they had big aspirations. Uh, and it was through a project that they called Alimentando la Esperanza, which is feeding the national hope. And so if anybody, if anybody speaks Spanish, you'll see we added an extra word in English, but uh, that's just because we thought it sounded better that way. Uh, and so uh, you can go to the next slide. The, the church in Venezuela wanted to provide food to every single one of their churches uh, that's present in the country. There are 126 churches in Venezuela, uh, or there were at the time that we started the, the that they started uh, this distribution. And they didn't just want to give it to one family in each church. They decided they wanted to serve 10 families in each church. And they were able to do it not just one time, but two times. So you can go to the next slide. Oh no, not the next slide, go back, sorry. Um, so we heard so many stories of, of, again, people sharing the food that they were getting with other people, with their grandparents, with their neighbors. Uh, and we also uh, heard lots of stories of supermarket owners or wholesalers where the district superintendent or the pastor would go and say, we need uh, a thousand kilos of rice. Um, we use kilos in all of our countries. And if you don't really get that, that's okay, because I don't either. Um, and, but they would go and say, we want a thousand kilos of rice. And the wholesaler would say, okay, that's, that's normally $200. But what we're going to do is give you 2000 for the same price. And so uh, God used those supermarket owners and, and multiplied the loaves and the fish right in front of us. And we were able to, well, the church in Venezuela was able to serve uh, their community two times. Uh, and, and they were able to make a difference uh, people who had maybe a little bit of corn flour uh, to make their dinner uh, sent us messages or sent messages to the churches saying, uh, we, we didn't have anything else that we were going to eat and you guys came just in time. Uh, and so the Church of the Nazarene, the body of Christ through the Church of the Nazarene was able to um, be a light in the darkest, one of the darkest situations that, that we have going on in the world right now. Uh, and so we praise God for, for their initiative and their willingness to serve their community in this way. And so the last thing uh, that, that I'm going to share, and I forgot to tell the, the guys in the back that there's audio on a video in my PowerPoint. And so I don't know how that'll work. But there's subtitles uh, because the little girl in the video is speaking Spanish anyway, so most of us probably wouldn't 
uh, know what she was saying. Oh, but first, um, we, everything that we do in NCM kind of centers around this verse uh, in Matthew 25. And you guys might be familiar with the story, but Jesus is talking to a crowd of people and he's talking about uh, Judgment Day. And he says, he's talking about the king who's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And uh, he's going to say uh, to, the, to the sheep, come in, receive your reward. Because for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the story goes on, uh, or, or Jesus keeps talking, and he tells the people that uh, the sheep are going to look at the king and say, but when did we do that? Uh, and Jesus, uh, the king is going to say to them, well, I tell you, whenever you did it for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And then uh, there's the whole part about the goats and how they didn't do all of these things and how they're going to get a different reward that's not really a reward. Um, but I don't think we have to get to that part of the, the story because I think knowing that serving our brothers and sisters, our community, people who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are prisoners, who are sick, uh, serving them pleases the heart of God. And just knowing that is enough uh, for me to, to keep doing it and to, to do it as much as possible. And so I think next is the, the video. Es un lugar hermoso, hay montañas, es un lugar fresco donde hace mucho viento. Estoy en quinto grado de primaria. Mi materia favorita es arte. Lo que más me gusta es pintar con témpera. Yo leo la Biblia y aprendo muchas cosas sorprendentes sobre ella. Tengo dos hermanos. Yo tengo mi papá, pero... Bueno, no me viene a visitar. Ahora no sé dónde está, hace dos años que no lo veo. Yo vivo con mi mamá. Ella cuando era pequeña, cuando nació, ya no, ya no veía. Veía un poco, pero como pasteaba las ovejas y miraba mucho el reflejo del sol y eso le dañó al ojo. Cuando yo nací veía un poco, pero ahora no mira nada. Y yo le ayudo en muchas cosas, como a veces en cocinar, porque le puede pasar algo. Como no ve, no puede caminar, pero eh, yo le guío a lugares donde puede ir ella. Y entré a los tres años al proyecto. Mi mamá me llevó. Mis hermanos también fueron parte. Ahí yo estudiaba o aprendía cosas. Aprendí a pintar con témperas, aprendí a dibujar. Ahora estoy con una maestra llamada Kelly, que me, ense que me enseña manualidades. Los días sábados hay talleres de coreografía, talleres de teatro, y ajedrez y batería. Almorzamos en la cocina y de 2 a 3 de la tarde hacemos coreografías. Encantamos las alabanzas, sé jugar ajedrez, me gusta jugar ajedrez y alabar al Señor. A mí me gustaría ser maestra de inicial porque me gusta enseñar a los demás. Mi deseo es construir una casa más grande para que sea un poco más cómoda. 
me siento feliz por el apoyo que me dan en el, en el proyecto. Estoy agradecida a Dios porque he recibido en mi corazón. So that's Maria. Maria is part of a child development center on our region. Uh, and I don't know if you, if, if the subtitles were going too fast, but Maria's mom is blind. Uh, but Maria's mom took her to that child development center so that she could learn. And Maria had the opportunity to learn chess. Uh, I don't know, how many, how many chess players do we have here? Okay. How many of you were playing chess at like eight or nine years old? Yeah. Okay, so there's maybe one or two. Uh, and so uh, Maria probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn how to, how to play chess, which seems like a trivial thing. But more importantly, as Maria in that video said, she wants to be a preschool teacher. And one of the things that, that we've seen over the years, um, here in, in the US, I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be first a farmer that didn't kill any animals. So I'm not sure how that would have worked, but uh, then I wanted to be a Secret Service agent. Uh, I probably saw some movie or something. Uh, and then I wanted to be a thoracic surgeon, and then uh, I don't know what I wanted to be. Uh, and, and so we have children just dream about what they're going to want to do in the future. And, and what we see is, is children who are in uh, situations of vulnerability, like Maria would have been without the Child Development Center, a lot of times they don't have that opportunity to dream about what they want to do because their, their family is surviving and they're doing what they can to survive and they know that someday uh, they'll do what they can to finish their schooling but someday they're going to have to work to help the family survive and so they don't dream in the same way and so the, the local church opening a child development center like this um, and serving children in, in the community is helping children to dream for a better future and, and all the while helping them with uh, physical, intellectual, spiritual, emotional, and social development. Uh, and so uh, there are tons of stories like this uh, on our region. Uh, and if you want to know more about child sponsorship, just let me know. Uh, so I say all of this, you can go to the last slide, uh, to say thank you uh, to you. Um, I've been sharing with every church that I've been to that everything that I do as a missionary in, in the Church of the Nazarene uh, any number of other people could do, and they could do it well. A lot of t in a lot of cases, they could do it better than I do it. Uh, but God has uh, called me to, to serve in this way, and I'm fortunate, privileged, blessed to be able to serve his church uh, as a missionary. And a lot of that is possible because of churches like you and your faithfulness to your World Evangelism Fund and your other uh, missions offerings. Uh, churches around the world are supporting uh, what the Church of the Nazarene is doing in, in different places. So thank you for being part of this movement of God through the people of God. Thank you for joining us today. We would love for you to join us in person. Our address is 2022 East Main Street in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you'd like to make a donation to keep our podcast ministry going, you can do so online at reallifecommunity.org slash give. Thanks again for listening.